Cashflow Diary Podcast, Episode 245. Welcome to yet another exciting episode of the Cashflow Diary Podcast. The podcast that teaches you insider tips, tactics, and strategies for creating leverage streams of cash flow into your life. Learn from top-performing entrepreneurs, business owners, investors, and thought leaders from across the globe as they share their secrets to success. Like what you learn on this and other Cashflow Diary podcast episodes? Go to learninvestingnow.com and sign up to receive powerful tips and information that will help you succeed as an entrepreneur and investor. Now, here's your host, investor, entrepreneur, business owner, educator, speaker, author, and master facilitator of Robert Kiyosaki's Cashflow Game, Jay Massey. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Cashflow Diary Podcast, and I am your host, Jay Massey, and I'm glad that you are here today, and here's why. We're going to talk about something that we have never done before in a different way. What, what do I mean? I mean, we all have great ideas. You've got a good business you want to build. You want to make that cash flow happen. Okay, you got a widget. Or maybe you're like me. You're like, hey, here is another building that I'd like to take down. Or maybe at some point you go, man, I would love to be able to buy a new shopping center. You might actually be thinking that now because you've grown to the point to where that's the case. However, no matter how many deals you want to do, no matter how much money you think you have, you eventually run out of your own resources and you need to learn how to access the resources of others. We've talked about many different ways of accessing resources of others and today is going to be a unique way that you may not have heard of but is very viable in today's market. I have with me today none other than Richard Wilson. He is the CEO of the Miami Multifamily Office. It's a half billion, that's with the B, of a uh, single of, of uh, fa- family office in down in Florida. Is that where you, you guys are down in Florida, right? Yes, that's correct. Okay, that's what I thought. I'm just making sure. And here's the interesting thing. He not only runs a family office, but he also has a, a club of family offices called Family Office Club. Get that. A thousand offices. He has a best-selling book so that you can learn how to make this thing happen for you. And somehow he manages to have time for a wife and two daughters all at the same time. So I think this is going to be interesting today. If you've never heard of the concept of a family office, we're going to find out a lot about it and more importantly how it plays a role in your business. So help me welcome Mr. Richard Wilson. Richard, you there? Yes, I am. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm glad that you're here because uh, I, as we were talking before we started, I called you guys like the unicorn. I mean, many people don't know what a family office is, where to find you, and those two words together don't even make sense. Now, I want to make sure that we do answer that. However, before we get there, there's a question that I like to ask everybody. Um, I, I tend to look at today's entrepreneurs, of course, you would be one of them, a lot like yesterday's superheroes. So, you know, you got Hulk and Batman, Spider-Man and Wonder Woman, all these things. And, and they, you know, because I think superheroes and entrepreneurs have a lot in common. Uh, occasionally, a you know, superheroes and entrepreneurs, we both get dressed up. We, we put on special clothing. Maybe we don't necessarily wear tights and masks, but we go around and serve people in various different ways and use our special skills to improve their life. How just like superheroes, though, uh, you know, before Peter Parker was, you know, climbing on walls as Spider-Man, he was just, a, you know, a camera guy, so to speak. And I think entrepreneurs also have that same origin story. 
So before the <laughs> family offices, before the book, before even before the 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 wife and the kids, we want to know who is Richard Wilson. Sure, sure. I mean, I started doing uh, risk consulting for publicly traded companies. It was my first job out of school. You know, paid for my MBA, uh, but it was very boring. So then I started raising capital. <laughs> and uh, I just found that while trying to raise capital from wealth management firms, that there were 500 books on the topic. But the most valuable top 0.1% of the space called family offices, nobody was writing anything on it. No one was providing me helpful education. So selfishly, I just started, you know, reading everything I could and sharing, you know, some over the internet on a blog at that time with everything I was learning and every time I met with one. And then everything just took off from there. And, you know, the momentum just took over. But in short, I was just writing and sharing for my own self teaching of the space. And then it ended up making the industry more efficient so others could learn more about it as well. Wow, that's okay. I like where this is headed already. So before we go too far, though, for those who may not know, break down what is risk consulting? Because yeah, it it I get the whole boring thing, <laughs> but for those <laughs> who may not know, what what is that? So uh, one of the clients was Daimler Chrysler, the car company. One was Pacific Corp, an energy company. In short, we mapped out the risk controls, like how does money flow through this publicly traded company, and create flow charts of where there are you know controls in place to make sure there's not embezzlement or money being lost, or just inefficient processes. So it's a little bit like management consulting, risk consulting, all those Sarbanes-Oxley type control, accounting consulting, all mixed into one. But that, that wasn't, in short, what it was. Got it. Got, so you're good with Excel then, huh? Excel and uh, PowerPoint and, uh, you know, project management type stuff, right? <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> you, you might actually know how to use Visio. That's amazing. Right. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I think we can count all of those people on one hand. Um, now, when it comes to, you said you started raising capital. What was what 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 was that for? What were you trying to raise capital to do? So we had a thirty million dollar hedge fund client, a fund to fund with seven hundred million plus, and then we had a twenty four billion dollar separate managed account investment fund, and they were all paying us, you know, ten thousand dollar a month retainers um, plus upside on capital raised because they were good at the investment shop side, but they wanted help in raising capital. And so, you know, I started out calling through the old money market directory of institutional investment consultants and called through hundreds of them and got many people on the phone through due diligence calls. And long story short, we were really bad at raising capital for quite a while. (laughs) And when your clients are paying you 10,000 a month, they tend to ask you at first multiple times a quarter and then multiple times a month. And then eventually multiple times a week, what are you doing and where are the investors that you promised? And so the pressure built and we ended up having to get more and more focused on who's actually going to be really investing right now, not in the future, but right now, where are we going to raise capital? And we narrowed it down to wealth management firms, RIA, broker dealer networks. And then I took initiative to, within that niche, niche it down to calling on family offices. And everything I've done since I started my business is all about operating within a niche, within a niche, within a niche, and just continually you know, iterating along those paths that you find, whether it's capital raising, marketing, or building a conference business, et cetera. Well, uh, and you know, I like this. I like this. So what I hear you saying is you kind of just started and figured it out on the way. Right. Exactly right. And so would you describe yourself as a fire aim ready kind of person for sure evan pagan uh evan pagan's a big mentor of mine and he taught me speed of implementation and um i wrote 
a book on that in one night after telling my clients about it so many times. One of my clients said, wow, if you believed in it, you'd just write the book in it. And we, we give it away at some of our events and it's, you know, we don't make any money off it. But I, I just love that concept so much. It's one of our core values. We onboarded a new employee today and I explained why speed of implementation is a core value. And it's all related to the story I just told you, actually. That's awesome. And I, I well, I love it because I'm always requesting, demanding, and conjoling and saying, please, just move at the speed of instruction. That's the words that we tend to use around here is because there's so much that's lost, especially in terms of opportunity, when you just don't get into action. Yes, there's going to be some bumps in the road. Uh, however, you, you'll still be further than the guy who's sitting at his desk trying to map it all out from the beginning. No wonder risk consulting was boring for you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Far too static. I don't know. How, how did you even get into, like, why was that even ever well, on the table? The day out of my undergrad, I was making more than my professors were. You know, my first job out of my undergrad from a no-name state university, and I made seventy-eight thousand my first year, and I was making a hundred thousand, you know, second or third year out of school. So I sucked it up and worked the overtime, and you know, just you know, the money was good enough that I was able to put up with the pain. So yes, I got you, golden handcuff syndrome. (laughs) Got it, got it. So this brings up an interesting question, though, because there's a point in every superhero slash entrepreneur's life where they realize, hey, I got a special skill, and then you you have to make this decision to actually pursue it. So if you were working already, how did you a discover that? you know, I might be able to do this on my own. Well, the interesting thing is I went from risk consulting to capital raising and took a cut from making six figures down to a 55000 guaranteed, but I thought I had upside on raising the capital. And I really was just tired of being judged based on my age. You know, at that point, I was very young. And uh, even though I was making six figures, I could tell I was being judged based on my age. And I said, well, I know I can kill it and just work harder than the person next to me. So I want something where it doesn't matter how old I am. If I bring meat to the table, then I'm getting a chunk of that meat. And so I went to commercial real estate or capital raising, chose capital raising. And then when I went to start my own business, uh, we had just started to raise uh, a lot of capital the four months before that with some new strategies that we were trying and basically, you know, took a pay cut down to nothing. Um, (laughs) You know, so I kept on going down, down. But then, you know, our first year in business, we did, uh, you know, seven months, we did 150K. The next year, we did 350 and then uh, six, 700. And then we got to a million a year in about three, three, four years into the business. And um, so luckily, it all paid off. But um, definitely, there's some leaps of faith there multiple times. Indeed, indeed. Now, you mentioned something that, see, a number of our students and, and uh, real estate entrepreneurs are, we'll say they don't have gray hair yet. So, uh, and they may not be as seasoned in life. And you said something that I find interesting because I'm always, because I, I get the question all the time, Jay, am I too young to do this? Is that what you meant by judged based on your age? Yeah, I think you should forget that you think you're too young to do anything. It's complete garbage. I think that in some positions where you're not paid on a performance fee or not paid based on bringing in a new client and sharing on that gross revenue, that's where you can get killed because people can keep you in a box and they'll say, oh, yeah, I'll bump them up and that'll keep them loyal and, you know, I'll get them on some 12-year track to actually making really good money. You know, I think instead you need to be in a place where if you bring me to the table, you're guaranteed carved off piece of that meat and that's how you get paid a lot. And if you look around at people that make a lot, the highest paid attorneys, they get a percentage of the winnings on the cases they close. The highest paid investment professionals typically are hedge funds, sometimes they're private equity fund managers on the billionaire list. 
they're getting a percentage of the takedown a performance fee on a hedge fund when they have positive performance. So, you know, it's not only when you're young that it's a great thing. If you know you have the goods, then when you're young, I think it's the best way to do real well. Well, I I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> and I don't I I just know that many of those listening are they they get this, you know, uh, thought in their head that no one's going to, you know, who would sell me their house? I'm quote unquote, I'm only 22. I'm only 23. I just got out of school. And I'm like, none of that matters if you can solve the problem. For sure. It does not, especially when you're dealing with something like a tangible product, like a house, like a couple of quick stories on this is, you know, when I was uh, just 23 years old, I wrote my first book because Jeffrey Gittimer said, I'll give you my, my best secret out of 10 best selling books. I know none of you will copy it write every day on your industry and you'll be a regional expert within a year, a national expert in two years and a global expert in three years. And I didn't know what to write a book on, but I said, I'm going to be the SOB that actually follows his advice. And so (laughs) I wrote the book, I wrote a book and, uh, you know, I was only 23. And then that helped me get that consulting job that I didn't have the experience for, but I convinced them, just give me a shot. They gave me a three week trial it worked out. And, you know, I think authority is taken, not given. And you take it with hard work and focus on a little niche sandbox that you can just, you know, pour so much value into that others can't compete with the amount of value that you're providing in that niche area. Agreed. I am so excited. We are kindred spirits, my friend. So with (laughs) this being the case, uh, I guess the, the question comes, how do you muster the, the courage? How do you face the fact that Look, you know, half the world, 90% of the world is going one direction. You're going to go this completely opposite. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that maybe mom, dad, somebody said, Hey, Richard, what are you doing? Why, why are you doing this? You, you went to school. You got all these things. Why are you trying to leave this behind? Yeah, definitely. There's actually only one person, uh, one of my friends from Boston, uh, Douglas McLean, who I remember the exact day that he called me. I was taking some evening classes at, at Harvard and he called me and I was walking out of the computer lab and he said, like, no, don't take that job offer in Connecticut. You need to start your own business uh, instead, you know, in this family office niche. You have something here. And everybody else, uh, from girlfriend to parents to family members and best friends were telling me it'd be crazy to start my own thing because I have no income. Like in Harvard Square, my rent was a thousand a month. I had eight hundred dollars in the bank account. But <laughs> I, you know, I just went for, you know, from a young age, I'd always wanted to have my own business. And I had started two or three businesses in in high school, everything from selling my friends in high school's parents on long distance telephone service through a multi-level <laughs> marketing thing to nice. selling Christmas trees and refereeing soccer games. So like that hunger is always in me. I think that was part of it. I knew I wanted to get there, so I was willing to do you know whatever it took to to get it done. I hope for those of you that are listening, for the number, I mean, we've interviewed so many entrepreneurs now, and you hear the same stories of from selling candy to going door to door, doing lawn mowing. Now, did you say refing soccer? Yeah. Okay, that might be the first time we've heard that one. Uh, <laughs> but you, we've got all kinds of different things, and you can see and hear the clues, the passion, and the desire. And then that at some point, you're faced with this challenge. It's either, okay, you're going to go this one direction with absolutely no guarantees, and this, or you're going to go this other direction. So I'm assuming you and the one supporter you had are, are still close. Right, we for sure are. I told him that I owe him, you know, pretty much for life. I just, I just spoke to him last month, actually, get a reference check on someone in Boston. But um, 
you know, as the saying goes, it's like use, use too much. It's kind of corny. You got, you know, you got to risk it to get the biscuit. And if you look at who's paid the most, it's people that took risk or they, they are paid based on performance. So I think that, you know, that's a, a big part of what I believe in. And I think that if you know that you care and you care more than your competitors, then, you know, you'll be able to produce the value and you should just be confident in that. So all those people listening that are on the edge should listen to your advice and what I'm saying right now. And, take the plunge and, you know, plow forward with confidence. Excellent. I love that. Now, let's address the subject that I know many of them are like, yeah, Jay, I would love to plunge forward, but where's the money coming from? So as we get to that, can you describe to us in how you see what, what is, what is a family office? So a family office is really a full balance sheet, holistic wealth management solution for an individual. And there's really only two types, so it's pretty simple. There's a single family office, which would be, you know, I sold my business for 400 million, so I need my own single family office, or there's a multifamily office, which is essentially just a wealth management firm, but it has much more holistic, full-rounded services incorporating trust and estate, insurance, multi-generational, multi-generational planning. And they might have 200 clients or 20 clients. It's not just serving one family. So those are the two main types. Got it. So what is the what is their function in the role? Like, why would a real estate entrepreneur, how, how does a real estate entrepreneur and a family office, when what ways could they work together? So one way is if you become ultra wealthy and invest in real estate, you might want a family office to make sure your taxation and everything is incorporated and planned from a 360 degree view. So you don't sell a piece of real estate one day after a tax law change or that you know about, <laughs> you know, what a cost segregation engineering study is and you might be able to depreciate a huge percentage of your building in the first year instead of depreciating it slowly. Like that alone, you know, could uh, put you on the right side of a deal. And so that's one reason why you might have one. But the more important question that I'm sure people want to hear about is how do you actually interact with one? How do you raise capital from one? And really family offices, since they're led by typically very smart, experienced entrepreneurs, they're business people. They're looking for savvy business deals. You know, the single family office I help run, they made a $36 million investment in a piece of real estate debt over the holidays. They also have $500 million of real estate assets in place, including an office building, some CVS retail, uh, commercial real estate. And they also have uh, 19 different fuel stations, gas stations under under ownership. So that's just an example of what a portfolio might look like of a you know a 500 million dollar net worth single family office. And importantly, uh, like I mentioned at the very beginning, if you go and you try to sell a real estate investment, whether you're trying to do it as an independent sponsor or a real estate investment fund or just a guy who's developing real estate, and you try to sell that to a big you know like Harvard Endowment Fund or Stanford endowment fund it is very difficult they have a thousand check boxes to meet if you go to your local you know family office and you develop a real relationship with you with them and they know their local market backwards and forwards they might really agree with your investment thesis and as long as you help them manage that downside of their investment they could be open to very creative terms that could range from gross revenue royalties to a debt or convertible debt or equity play on something that you're working on Absolutely. And this is why I get excited. Now, just for those so that everyone is on the same page, when he says investment thesis, I want you guys to think investor identity, the reasons why you're doing these types of deals. And so if I hear you correctly, though, Richard, what you're really saying is 
when you need a lot of money and you may not want to jump through all the hoops that the the we'll say Wall Street would put you through, you have the ability here to do the same and similar types of funding, but be more creative with more flexibility. Right. That's correct. And we did a benchmark study on 180 family office respondents globally, and we found that those who did invest in real estate had a 25% allocation to the space. And they prefer local real estate investments, but families also like to be diversified as a general rule. So I think that this is meaningful for someone, whether you're based in Turkey or Tokyo uh, or London or New York or Miami or a smaller city. There's family offices everywhere. There's over 10,000 of them globally. And the industry is really thriving and growing. So you'll start hearing about this term more and more in the Wall Street Journal, magazines you read, and in your social circles, most likely. Excellent. Perfect. Now, some of the deals that I know that I've been looking at and doing recently, uh, they just have investment minimums, you know, 5 million, 10 million, what have you. I'm assuming you guys have a similar, that some offices have a, a similar criteria? Right. That's correct. We were just, I just got off the phone, you know, four or five minutes ago before we started here with um, a $200 million single family office that I'm head of direct investments for. And we're building them a public facing website so that people can see exactly what their investment mandate is. And it's really important that family offices communicate that to the public. Like we only want something that is at a $20 million equity check needed or higher. We don't want to waste our time on due diligence on small deals. If you talk to a billion dollar net worth family, that's typically the threshold is $20 million per check that they write per investment they make. Will they make smaller ones? Yes, but they like to spend $20 million per investment or more for more common family offices. Uh, that would be someone worth $100 million to $500 million um, or much more common. And those typically like to start at a 3 to $5 million investment. But I've seen families of that size do as small as a quarter million or a half million dollar investment if it's a way to get to know a counterparty. Excellent. And I, I'm just here. And here's the point. What I'm trying to bring to everybody's attention, there are so many ways to get access to money. So I, I'm, I'm just going to make an assumption, Richard, you let me know if this is true. I'm going to assume that in general, for the family office industry, they have more money than deals at, at almost every time. I'm hoping that as you're listening right now today, guys, that you're learning something completely different, completely new. Most importantly, you probably didn't know these guys existed. So I don't really want to delay much longer. But one thing I do want to do is make sure that everybody knows if you want to get a free copy of my book, Cashflow Diary, 10 Steps to Creating Wealth in Any Economy, just go over to cashflowdiary.com forward slash free book. Again, that's cashflowdiary.com forward slash free book or for those of you on a mobile device just text 72,000 text to 72,000 the keyword is book text book to 72,000 and you can have a copy of my book cash flow diary 10 steps creating wealth in any economy and for those of you who like audio there's a special offer for it just right behind there anyway let's get back to it quickly that's correct. More money than what they consider great deals. You know, the more public the family, obviously, an Oprah Winfrey, a Richard Branson family office, they get diluged with deals. They are the anomaly. They are the 1% that you've actually heard of. Everyone else who didn't make their wealth by being famous or while being famous has problems getting access to excellent quality deal flow. And I always talk about like a totem pole. If you get access to 1,000 deals a year, your top 1% are not going to be, your top 1% are going to be pretty good compared to someone who only sees 100 deals a year. That means their top 1% is one deal, uh, you know, instead of 10 deals to choose from. So 
you know, families have the problem of not being shown enough deal flow. And, you know, at the expense of rambling a little bit, I would say that one really important takeaway for people listening to this is that family offices complain that people pitch them without listening. And it's really important you listen first because it'll help you get educated on the family office space in general. It will help you earn their respect and it will allow you to take the hour that you could talk about your investment and narrow it down to the 15 minutes that is what they want to hear, the part of the story that's most important to them. And you can craft business terms that make sense with their investment thesis and investment preferences. So many people does cold call, pitch, leave voicemails, cold emails. You're never going to grow a referral network that way. So you're really shooting yourself at both feet when you're just pitching and not listening first to an investor. Oh my goodness. Uh, I just want to make sure that everybody understands that uh, we did not have a conversation before and I did not tell him to say that. Here's why. <laughs> he just give, gave you exactly why you must do your investor identity interviews so that you know exactly what to say, craft the, the customize that your package, whatever it is that you're doing to make sure it meets their identity, i.e. criteria. Otherwise, you just heard him say it. I couldn't have said it any better. And that's what I get excited about is when you follow the system, the system works regardless of where you're seeking the resources. So what are some of the uh, typical due diligence requirements? Like, I I know that for, you know, I know it's just different. I mean, like some people want to exclude themselves because I know someone somewhere is saying, okay, yeah, they got money. That's wonderful. That's great. But I got bad credit or I had this or I, or they're, they're trying to find a way to prevent themselves from calling you. And I'm trying to give them every reason to call you. So (laughs) what are some of those due diligence requirements that, you know, um, that actually, you know, you, you guys are looking for, but most people can still pass. The most important thing that sounds soft, but is really important is will a very savvy, sharp person think that the business terms you're presenting them make sense at all. So many people pitch things that are so one-sided that, of course, most savvy investors are going to say no. Like one person pitched us a deal where the family I represent would provide them with debt to start a business, and they would give us a percentage return on that debt. But it was a new business. It was very risky, and they didn't want to give any equity. They only wanted to pay off the debt and have us go away. So just make sure that if you are more generous, you're obviously much more likely to close the deal. It seems obvious, but a lot of people pitching haven't really thought about how that pitch can be perceived, especially if you have a lot of deals to choose from. Um, Other things I think that's most important is that the way you do one thing is the way you do everything. And since family offices are so long-term minded, the way that you dress, like I usually wear a three-piece suit. If I leave Key Biscayne, which is like this little island I live on 10 minutes from Miami, and if I leave the island where everyone just wears like golf clothes, I usually put on my three-piece suit, a really nice, you know, Hugo Boss suit. And I we host our events in like JW Marriott. I stay, you know, and meet with people at either the Harvard Club or the Ritz Carlton. And like, I take time if we're going to put something out to do an excellent job and do something thoughtful and deliver a lot of value. Because the client, the way that you speak to them, and if you listen or not, or if you're trying to sell them quick, like an automobile salesperson, or, um, you know, if you take shortcuts, they're going to think you're always going to take shortcuts. And they want someone who has integrity and is going to do something the high quality, integrity way in everything they do so that they know you can be relied upon and if they refer you to someone that they can rely upon that being a high quality interaction so i think that you know that's something that pertains to every type of investment sector and then you know when we move beyond that i think that obviously it helps if there is a track record 
that the team has done this before. If it's a brand new idea, you better be giving the family office a ton of equity or protection or guarantees in some way in terms of assets being put up against the idea, et cetera, because I think that you know, a lot of people come with ideas that are not proven and then they wonder why it's not successful. I think it's, you know, when you're starting out, you have to start somewhere, but you need to de-risk it for the other party. I like the way you said that. And so the interesting thing, though, I hope everybody picked up on him, is he he said team. He, you didn't say the entrepreneur themselves. You, in general, expect there to be a team in place to actually execute this vision. Right, for sure. And if there's not, then say there's not. The worst is when someone says, yeah, we have this team. And then all the photos, you know, it's one guy with like, you know, a cropped photo where there's like the hand on his shoulder and you can't even see the arm. It's obviously from a wedding or something. And then someone has a color photo and a black and white photo. And it's like, (laughs) you know, these people aren't actually on his team. These are like LinkedIn friends that hopefully he's met in person once in his life. So, you know, pay some guy on Craigslist a hundred bucks to shoot some black and white semi-pro photos Make sure people are committed to your team and just disclose to the other party, here's where I'm at. I'm early and that's why I'm giving you great terms and just be authentic. And I find any time that you're debating upon what to do, you just need to find the authentic path of beefing up your advisory board or finding someone who will work for you on a committed basis and giving them big upside to de-risk that time investment on their part. Absolutely understood. So, I, you know, the, the, the more and more I, I keep talking to you, uh, and for those that you know are listening and, and hopefully watch, I, I think it, it it feels like I'm I'm on an episode of Shark Tank. To be honest, I don't know if you mm-hmm. watch the show, but that's I what do. it feels like right now. Right? Is right, that yeah? It 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 feels the exact same. What I'm assuming is just basically if you can if you can pull off what they do there, you're saying just bring that. Mostly, yes. I think a lot of families like to see things that are. Mid-stage, they like to find things that have uh, been able to climb out of the ocean and actually take some steps on the sand. If it's a whole new embryonic idea, you're going to have to go to a couple of local families who made their money either in the industry that you're in, because even though you're early stage, they'll see your thesis, hopefully, and agree with it. But if it's an industry and they made their money somewhere else and you're in biotech and they made their money in real estate, you know, good luck on convincing them to take an early stage bet on you. you know? So I, I do think that a lot of families would rather see things developed that are break-even or profitable at the very least, if not producing several hundred thousand in EBITDA or half a million in EBITDA. So I think that is important for people to know, but there's so many families out there, you can always find one that can relate to your area of expertise, I believe, if you if you hunt around and, and work hard in doing so. You know, I, I just had a thought, Richard. You probably watch Shark Tank for a completely different reason. Uh, well, the structuring of deals, you know, Mr. Wonderful is wonderful. And I like his, uh, the gross revenue royalty deals is something that family offices do not do enough. And it de-risks and gets, you know, the little money soldiers to come back into their bank account faster and allows for that gravy upside to be kind of de-risked faster. So I really like debt plays. I think some of the smartest people in the investment world play on the debt side. And then they get to collect first on the equity side if things do go south and can get equity kickers. But I would say that like the three shows I would recommend watching to, you know, they're actually fun to watch, but increase your investment savvy um, would be Shark Tank, The Profit. And then there's a show called Suits. Um, I can't remember if it was an HBO special or something else, but there's like three or four seasons of this show called Suits. And in that show, they're always thinking six or seven steps ahead, which allows them to one, add a lot of value to their clients and always be ahead of the game and look like the smartest person in the room. 
And then two, it allows them to navigate deals and get deals closed that otherwise would have gone south because they're thinking about it like a chess game and not checkers. Yes, absolutely. I, you know, it, you're, you're, you keep taking the words out of my mouth and it makes, it's like, has he been listening to me this entire time? And because I often tell people that real estate is a lot like chess or business in general. Once you know how the pieces move, it's up to you to develop your open, mid and end game and communicate that message. And you, you're, you're saying the exact same thing. So is there a particular, I mean, you having the global view of the family office, uh, you know, industry, is there a particular type of real estate that they, they prefer over others? I'm just curious. Yeah. So basically, um, the most common investment, the classic, is going into multifamily apartment buildings. And maybe they'd be okay for smaller units in an institution at 50 or 100 units, but many do go for 200 you know, plus unit multifamilies. But oftentimes, you know, they'll have a specific strategy of either local or you know, very high quality you know, beachfront or distressed, et cetera. I think hotels and self-storage is what's on the second level. And hotels have the sexiness, self-storage kind of act like multifamily sometimes and uh, are not seen as very risky. And then I would say underneath that is office, and then below that would be industrial real estate. Um, but to your point, I, um, I'm actually embarrassed to say, and I apologize for this, but I actually haven't listened to <laughs> your podcast yet. I promise I will, uh, going forward, but I, you know, I've got my family office podcast, which, which we're growing. And I think we speak the same thing because we speak the same language because there's this like Sun Tzu version of Chinese that successful capital raisers speak because there's this complex combination of things needed to survive in this jungle of working <laughs> with investors and navigating deals. So I think that's why we speak the same language. And I, I think it's even more beneficial that we do, and I haven't like listened to, you, to all of your episodes. That just shows the genuine, authentic advice that you've been giving your audience. And I've come up from a totally different route in a different geography with different clients. And I guess we're saying many of the same things to our audiences. Yeah, I'm, I, I can't wait until we begin to get some of the feedback from our, our regulars, because especially our members on the inside who are participating in some of our you know trainings that we do, because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just like, he just, I, I keep you know tilting my head to the side, like, did he just say that? Did he just say that? And I'm like, yeah, I'm like, that's exactly what I've been saying to people. And here you are doing the exact same thing, because I get the question, because, you know, where we started from, we, I mean, and you and I couldn't have started from two more opposite spectrums here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm, and people ask me all the time, but Jay, will that work if I want to get, you know, a million dollars from a person, 10 million, 5 million? I'm like, right. yes, it's the exact <laughs> same. There's still a person in the middle of all of this, regardless of the dollar amount. And here you are doing exactly that. So I, I just, I'm just excited uh, that this is happening right here and everyone's getting to participate. Yeah, maybe we could, uh, you know, to talk offline about it, I'd love to maybe have you speak at one of our events. You know, we, um, we probably have a lot of crossover and actually, you know, sharing more resources. We, we, sometimes I do like this eight-hour just kind of plow-through of content. I don't do them anymore, so I'm for sure not, like, selling that here. But I used to do these eight-hour capital-raising workshops that were just, like, ridiculously intense and you know, it sounds like you do some of that type of stuff. So I'd love to coordinate on that. And I think that we probably share similar mentors like Brian Tracy and Evan Pagan and Dan <laughs> Kennedy and Ogilvie. And, you know, some of those people have really been, you know, like Vern Harnish, have really been massively influential in, in my business. And I'm sure that's 
part of where the crossover comes from. But I get similar questions not only with, you know, do family offices invest in biotech? Like, yes, some of them do. The ones who made money in biotech, the ones who are in Silicon Valley, the ones who are familiar enough with it. And so the answer is always yes. If you're asking yourself right now, listening to this, oh, I don't know if a family office would invest in development of single family homes. Yes, you know, my $200 million client is not hung up the phone with. That's how they made all their money. They would for sure be open to, you know, such a proposal. Um, and the other thing that always comes up is that when I tell people that you need to define your sandbox so that you're not on the beach in Rio during carnival with a million people and you instead have one or two people in the little niche that you've carved out for yourself, you know, at most, you might carve out a niche that has nobody, then you're allowed to kill it in the niche and provide more value to that person. Because if you have arthritis in your knees, you don't want to go to the pharmacy and get a blue pill. You want fast-acting knee arthritis medicine, and you want to appear to the most valuable niche in your potential marketplace to have that knee arthritis fast-acting pill. And then that's why, the, that's why they'll come into the front door over and over again, if you target that right and niche within the niche enough. Indeed, indeed. I'm, I'm just getting more and more excited with every word you say. So I, I know one of the questions that some people are going to either send in, and if, if I don't ask, is what, what would you say? I mean, you've worked with a number of them. You've made the phone calls. You've been in the trenches. What's going to be the best way for an, a real estate entrepreneur or any entrepreneur listening to find and actually begin building that relationship so that they could hopefully be, you know, actually begin to do business. What's going to, is there a formal process? You know, I mean, do we fill out an application? What does it look like? Right. So it's multifold. In short, I would identify two to three cities that are either a, a bear and back type flight the same day or a road trip away, including your own city, hopefully, where you can develop relationships with ultra-wealthy families in single and multifamily offices. I would narrow it down to two to three cities and really develop business friends within those family offices and get to know them, and you'll create referral networks, and then you can do something more national. I think that you need to find a way to add value based on your core DNA, and you need to figure out what is the niche client you'll be serving, like your investor avatar, and you match that with your DNA, and you localize it, and you say, I'm all in on this, I know that no matter how long it takes, if I can dominate the sandbox, you know, the fruits will be bared, then you can have the work ethic to run circles around your, your competition. So of course, on the selfish side of things, you know, we have a uh, family office podcast, we have our single family office book on Amazon, which is uh, one of the best selling books in all of wealth management. And it's free on Kindle when we spent 700 hours writing that thing. And so it's essentially another free resource, just like the the podcast. So I'd love people to check those things out because our whole business model is to be aggressively generous within the sandboxes that we select. And just like you've done here in the podcast, it just creates business friends naturally. So I encourage people to do what you're doing, but within their own sandbox, localize it a bit and just add value first, connect people to each other and just know how you can be valuable to them instead of like pitching them on your latest deal. Indeed. So with that being the case, I know there's more than one person listening right now who wants to f know how to specifically track you down and, and reach out. Sure, sure. I mean, the easiest way is uh, easy to remember website, uh, familyoffices.com. There you can find, uh, you know, our free ebook you can download. You'll find links to, you know, our quarterly family office conferences. You'll find uh, our, a link to our paperback book on Amazon called The Single Family Office. So, just familyoffices.com or checking out our Family Office podcast. And we're 
happy to be helpful. Anyone in your audience, you know, say that you are a subscriber uh, or listen to this interview, and I'll make sure and get back to you. You know, the same business day or within twenty four hours, if uh, if I can at all. And just so that we're clear, you are not limited to, or, or are you limited to just United States, or can you transact or deal with in, uh, international uh, real estate as well? Uh, we work with uh, international clients as well. So at our last, you know, five hundred and fifty person event last month, we had probably twenty different countries. Uh, participating, you know, as participants and speakers on stage. So the industry is very global. And it's actually, you know, while we're lucky in the United States, it's a number one place where billionaires and centimillionaires like to migrate to. And there's more billionaires in New York than the whole country of Canada. And there's far more in the U.S. than anywhere else in the world. So we're fortunate to have that. But the fortunate part, if you're listening to this from, you know, somewhere else, uh, such as Greece or Italy, is that the family office industry is more new. So you're more ahead of the curve and you can get on top of this trend before other people have ever heard about it. Awesome. Now, I've got a final question for you. uh, And I I think you I'm I'm just going to take a stab and go, he's probably going to say something I've already said before, because you keep saying these things and I love it. Sure. So Let's pretend for a moment that you're in front of this would-be, you know, superhero, this would-be entrepreneur who who's who believes, you know, I, I think I've got my thing. I think I'm ready. They're standing in front of the superhero outfit store right now, picking out their tights and going, okay, I'm going to do this thing. However, Richard, in the back of their mind, they still have that voice. And you know that voice. You've heard that voice. You have done battle <laughs> with that voice many a day. They've got that voice in the back of their head that just seems to be persistent. And they've got those friends who are telling them things that they, they don't necessarily want to hear right now. And they, they, they still want to move forward, though, but they're kind of stuck. What would you say to that person? I would say avoid risks that result in big debt. Um, I'm not big on debt, and I think it's stressful, and it does the opposite of freeing you. I would say be very careful what partners you select and make sure something can be unfolded easily if you start to divert views. Um, I would also say that as you go into something, see how you can de-risk it while staying in your current position. You know, If there's a way to stay in your current position and do something that is allowed by your employer, like, oh, I just want to write articles. Do you mind if I write articles um, and you're able to own that content, then that's a way to de-risk it. You know, while I was raising capital, I was writing an article a week and I started getting 10 hits a day, 40 hits a day to the website. And by the time it came to the point where I quit my job at that capital raising position, you were getting 3,000 to 5,000 hits every single day and Investopedia and Forbes were paying me per article. So I knew even though I didn't have enough cash in the bank to pay my rent that month, (laughs) Um, that I would be able to, if nothing else, I'd just write more articles, charge for advertising on the blog, or get one of those consulting clients because people have been calling me for months. So I had de-risked it a bit, even though I was jumping from a guaranteed salary to nothing. Um, I think that you you can de-risk it by building up resources and just knowing what your game plan is so that the day you step out of your safety zone, you know what the process is and the steps and anything you could pre-build before you step your foot out that door, you might as well do that and enjoy the current income while you start to like build your on-ramp to what you really want to be doing. Excellent. I definitely just want to say that I appreciate the work, the inroads, the education, all the things that you have put together to make accessing and finding the unicorn in the woods that much easier for all of us. And thank you for taking the time to share your knowledge here with us 
at the Cash Flow Diary. Thank you as well. All right, ladies and gentlemen, you know what time it is. It's time for you to move at the speed of instruction. What does that mean today? You probably already know. In fact, some of you, you've already gone over to Amazon. You've already downloaded the Kindle book. You have already been on the website, and you are in action towards this goal. No longer can you tell me the money isn't out there. Oh, it's there. You just need to get your deal in front of them, and now you know how to do it. It's been fun talking to you guys today. I look forward to talking to you soon. Until next time.